Welcome to the Hindsight Podcast, a production by the Army Foundry Platform located at Fort Liberty, North Carolina. Our goal is to support the continuing education of our students through deep dives into subjects relevant to the complex and dynamic operating environments they find themselves in. Where appropriate, we address revisionist narratives and serve as a resource for intel, defense, and security practitioners and scholars. I am your host, Vu Tran, and on this episode, the Belt and Road Initiative, Separating Fact from Myth. As the popular narrative goes, the Belt and Road Initiative is a massive global infrastructure and investment initiative. It is often touted as the premier Chinese foreign policy project under President Xi Jinping. Officially launched in September of 2013 as the One Belt, One Road, or OBOR initiative, it would later be renamed in 2016 as the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI for short. To date, 155 countries have signed on to participate and over a trillion dollars have been spent on the projects across the globe, with an estimated final total cost running as high as $8 trillion. The BRI has major geostrategic implications for all nations on the planet and as such has been a lightning rod for controversy. Some of these are warranted and others are, as it turns out, not supported by the available data. Today we are joined by Samantha Custer, Director of Policy Analysis at Aid Data, a research lab at the College of William & Mary focused on studying the Belt and Road Initiative. Hello, Sam. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and walking us through what the data actually says about the Belt and Road Initiative. I'd like to start by teasing through the various narratives that surround the BRI. One is a story of Chinese state-directed overseas lending projects for the past two decades, stretching from as far back as 1999. The second one is of how the marketing of this activity as one belt, one road, and then later on belt and road initiative has really muddied the waters in terms of figuring out what is actually going on. So when Data began researching this, what were the issues that researchers on the team encountered and how did you guys deal with it in terms of methodology? That's a great question. When you're talking about China and China's financing of overseas development all over the world, there are a number of major challenges that we face right away. The first is China's opacity, the lack of transparency that we have in terms of what China is funding, where and to what effect around the world. Those sound like very simple questions, very difficult to answer based off of what China is disclosing about its activities. The second is that there, when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative specifically, um, there's a lack of consensus and substantial confusion over what the Belt and Road Initiative actually is. Um, and so it can range from very, very narrow definitions of it's just infrastructure or it's just development in a subset of countries to the BRI is everything and anything that, that the Chinese government is financing or backing around the world. Neither of these definitions, broad or general, or broad or narrow, is particularly useful. Um, and then, of course, you know, I think the third challenge with this is substantial rhetoric. Uh, that everything that uh, China is doing as it's rising in prominence in the world stage is extremely easy to become politicized. And so there's so much rhetoric in political discourse or in the media about what China is doing with what motives and with what effect that it's difficult to separate out myth from fact. So those are some of the challenges that, that we had to deal with. And so for this particular research project, uh, we tackled this in a few different ways. So first, when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative itself, we sought to understand how do Chinese leaders themselves, through their speeches, 
through their plans and strategies? How do they articulate what the Belt and Road Initiative is trying to achieve, its thematic areas of focus? It turns out there are five of them. Um, what are they trying to achieve? And then how do you think about turning that into a taxonomy? something that you can apply to a historical record of Chinese development projects and say, what of these things are actually kind of consistent with that view of the Belt and Road Initiative? And so we went through this process and we um, applied this taxonomy on a historical database that Adata had produced um, that covers the period of 2000 to 2017. Over 13,000 development projects, 165 countries were covered. Um, over $850 billion of, of investment. And so how do you look at what proportion of these projects are BRI-like BRI in that they are relevant to the stated focus areas of the BRI? And how has that changed over time? So that's essentially what we set out to do. Okay. And then just for our listeners, the BRI as an actual entity doesn't come into being until 2012. So there's already 12 years, maybe 11 mm -hmm. years of your data set that cover BRI-like activities before there was ever even the label of BRI? Yes, that's correct. So the, the Belt and Road Initiative was uh, initially launched or announced by President Xi in 2013. Um, and what we set out to do is to create a baseline, essentially, to say, okay, um, you know, how, and the reason, actually, to take a step back, the reason I was interested in this question is I was doing a series of, of interviews with leaders around the world uh, in various countries, and often I would hear cases of people saying, well, uh, this project was grandfathered in, meaning that it predated BRI, but now it's the poster child for BRI. And I said, well, okay, this is kind of interesting. Is BRI a really a substantial shift or pivot in in uh, China's strategy? Is it just a doubling down on what already existed? Or is this really just a branding and marketing strategy for things that already existed? And the only way you can really answer that question is to have a systematic way of looking at differences over time. And so you're right, like that official launch of the membership block of the Belt and Road Initiative kind of became the cut point where you can look and say, what did the, the, the volume, the nature, and the terms of these projects look like before that announcement and after that announcement, but in line with those five connectivities of BRI. So um, what China said it was trying to do with the BRI are things like strengthening communication between countries, uh, improving infrastructure connectivity, improving trade facilitation, monetary circulation and people-to-people -people ties. And so that became the things that we were looking at to say, how does that appear in projects pre-BRI and post? So within your report, you categorize projects as BRI themed and other ones that are non-BRI themed. So how did that delineation, like the proportion of projects pre-2012 and post-2012, how did that shift over time between BRI themed and non-BRI themed? Yeah, uh, what's interesting, you know, and I think it's um, intriguing for a few reasons. People often assume when uh, the Belt and Road Initiative came into being, oh, China is now involved in the game of financing and bankrolling overseas development. But China is actually a longstanding player in financing uh, overseas development. 
The second thing they assume is that the, with the launch of the Belt and Road Initiative, this is an entirely new thing, and China is starting to tackle things that they haven't done before. Um, and that also appears not to be true. So when we actually look at um, the, the breakdown of BRI to non-BRI projects in, in our data, um, we actually see BRI-themed projects um, coming into fruition as early as 2004. That's quite a, a far, uh, far ways ahead of uh, the announcement of the 2013 Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and we see that coming early. Uh, we see that um, there's a larger dollar amount of, of funding going to these projects pretty early on. We see increasing numbers of projects. Um, we see actually the proportion of BRI theme projects rising rapidly between 2000 and 20, uh, 2004 and 2008. Um, and as early as that period, you're starting to see a ratio of BRI themed projects to non-BRI themed projects of 70 to 30. So 70, 70 to 30 of the, um, of the portfolio is actually fully focused on BRI even before the announcement of the initiative. That's quite striking. And the 2008 cutoff is just partly because of the 2008 financial crisis. So there mm -hmm. wasn't necessary need to redirect investment inwards for, for Beijing or was there, or did the financial crisis of 2008 even put a dent in foreign lending activities for the PRC? Actually. So for, for China, you see, um, like if we look from 2000 through 2017 or even to today, um, 2008, the financial crisis is about the period where China starts to leapfrog ahead of the United States as the world's largest develop, uh, supplier of development finance. Um, and I do think that that is a consequence of the, the financial crisis at that time where you see large Western donors like the United States starting to turn inward. Um, they're thinking about dealing with their own problems, financial contagion. The PRC was not in the same situation. They were able to actually sustain and increase their engagements over time. What I mean about the 2008 being a consequential year is that this is where uh, the current level of BRI to non-BRI projects in China's portfolio becomes stable. And so you see the kind of a steady uptick up until that 2008 period, and then it kind of stabilizes from there. Okay, but it still grows in absolute terms. Yes. So the amount of funding increases, yeah. just the, the mix is the same. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other thing that your research I found was very interesting was how your approach to measuring public perception as that second mm -hmm. part of trying to figure out yeah. there are all these investment activities, but how is that actually being received at the, at the very lowest level? And if uh, when you're doing that, are you trying to tease the economic returns, the difference between the economic returns of a, of a project versus its perhaps political or diplomatic returns? Is that what's going on here? Is there a different objective? Yeah, I think, you know, with every uh, development project or every investment that China is making, I like to think that there's a there's two sides to that story. There's the perspective of the supplier of that assistance, the donor, if you will. 
Uh, and there's the perspective of the, the recipient or the, the partner country in that. Um, what do they get out of this project? What do they get out of this partnership? It's almost the supply, or the supply versus demand side, if you will. Um, so several reasons why understanding public perceptions are important. The first is um, to understand, you know, to what extent are investments in um, overseas development useful for winning hearts and minds? That is actually one of the stated uh, aspirations of great powers, be it China, be it the U.S., be it others. Um, and so are you seeing uh, more favorability as a result of all of these overtures you're making? Secondly, perceptions can be useful in understanding the comparative advantage of development partners. So seeing you know, which actors do countries want to work with in different sectors? Um, how influential are these, these actors in terms of shaping policy priorities? They can also be useful to, as, a, as a barometer to understand the, the actual impacts of these projects. One of the challenges with BRI is it becomes such a lightning rod of, for controversy where people in the global north or in the media will say, oh, well, Chinese development finance projects, they're always bad or they're always good. And I think asking perceptions of local leaders to say, well, what do you see as the economic benefits and drawbacks? What do you see as the environmental trade-offs here? That's really the, the impetus for this type of work. So the recipient um, of the investment pretty much has their own agency. So depending on the country, they're going to play their cards very differently um, to, I assume, maximize their own return from their perspective. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that we're increasingly countries in the in in the global south so low and middle income countries they have an increasing variety of choice when it comes to um, accessing capital to support their development that's actually a, a substantial difference today than we saw you know many many decades ago uh, where you know there are few suppliers of of credit and financing available for for um, low middle income countries. Today, I think countries can choose. And you know, they are act, they, it turns out that they are very deliberate in sizing up the perceived benefits and drawbacks of working with different development partners. So I would say that's definitely in play. Okay. So kind of this debt trap diplomacy view that the person borrowing the money is in some sort of victim, that's not entirely true, right? Because in this model, the borrower has agency. So can, you know, in theory, they did go through a cost-benefit analysis, and this was a very rational choice on, on their perspective. So there's a lot in that question. Yeah. I, I think that I would agree with the statement that the debt trap diplomacy narrative is misleading. And it's actually a myth I, I often get asked to debunk. <laughs> um, and I think one of the challenges of, of the debt trap diplomacy idea, it's catchy. Um, and it's also a shortcut for people um, to think about the Belt and Road Initiative, but it's, it's misleading. So let me unpack why that is. Um, so the first piece of that puzzle, debt. So there's, there's truth to that in the sense that China is the, now the world's largest uh, financier of development around the world, but it's not exactly like the traditional development partners. So if you, um, it's like an apples to dragon fruits comparison. Um, 
China lends the vast majority of its assistance in the form of uh, loans that are approaching market rates and export credits. Um, you know, over a nearly a two-decade period, about 81% of um, its overall assistance was in the form of debt. Um, that's not necessarily the case for traditional development partners. However, um, you know, if you were a leader and you were looking to access capital to build public infrastructure, uh, you know, to promote economic growth in your country, if you were to access financing off of the, the private sector capital markets and you're using that as your point of comparison, um, you know, some of the interest rates that we're talking about here are not dramatically different. Uh, between what China is offering and what the private sector is offering. I think the challenge being that, um, you know, often we forget that China is really a banker, not a benefactor when it comes to how it finances it, its assistance. And debt isn't always bad. Debt, it can be useful. It can be pragmatic. As you said, you're, you're thinking about the rational cost-benefit trade-offs um, of, okay, if I take on this this um, debt financing, it could be a high risk, high reward proposition. You know, if you get the estimates right, if you're able to bring in sufficient revenues to service those debts, then that could be a very shrewd calculation. But it turns out that governments are really poor at this practice of thinking about the whole cost benefit life cycle. And that's where I would kind of quibble a little bit with your definition, with you, how you, you framed it in that. Um, you know, when it comes to those long-term costs, governments tend to underestimate the true costs of financing with debt. When it comes to trap, I think the challenge of the trap analogy, analogy is it assumes that it assumes malign intent on the part of China that, you know, China wants countries to fail. It wants countries not to be able to repay the debts. And that doesn't really stack up in terms of being in China's interest because one of the original impetuses for why it even you know really doubled down in this area of financing for overseas development was um, it, its own economic problems at home. So it turns out that you know three decades of trading surpluses had given China over three trillion dollars in excess foreign currency reserves. And its industri state-led industrial policies had led to a huge oversupply in construction, steel, and engineering industries at home. And so if you're Chinese leaders and you're thinking about, I've got all this excess capital, I've got all this excess capacity, but I can't absorb it productively at home, where else do I look? And there is a whole strategy, actually, that uh, came out called the Going Global or the Going Out Strategy in 1999 mm -hmm. um, that fueled a lot of the interest in putting those, those investments to productive use abroad. And that's why you see the flavor of, of the Belt and Road Initiative and Chinese finance development projects focusing on infrastructure projects and tying the financing to use of Chinese firms for implementation. So it's in China's interest for countries to um, benefit from these projects, for these projects to be um, lucrative, to be economically viable doesn't mean that they always are. And one of the challenges is that the way that China structures this assistance can sometimes backfire. 
um, in that it sources project ideas directly from political leaders that aren't always thinking about the long-term life cycle of these projects. They're thinking about what will show visible progress to my constituents so that I can win another term or I can keep people satiated. That isn't always the most rational way to do a cost-benefit analysis. Um, and then diplomacy, yeah. I think it is that one, that piece of the, the, the trope debt trap diplomacy is probably the, the closest in that China definitely has mixed intent. Um, it has multiple objectives for its foreign assistance programs. It wants to win hearts and minds. It wants to gain the attraction and the admiration of the world. Um, it has political motivations. You know, if you are able to um, become increasingly important to other countries, that gives you leverage to get other things that you want. That is, you know, an age-old age adage for all great powers. Um, but it also has an economic uh, motive as well. So, you know, I think all of those things are in play. So I have two follow up questions off of that. Mm -hmm. um, the first is, since China is more of like a global banker in the sense where it lends money at close to market rates, is that pretty typical or is China unique in the way it lends as a, a great power? So compare it to the United States, Australia, or the UK, is that particular type of lending behavior um, representative of the whole or is it a very unique PRC thing? There are similarities and differences between how China uh, lends relative to other great powers. You know, I think one thing that is similar is that all great powers do well. At least, you know, if you look at the, an actor like the United States, um, they too have uh, instruments of debt that they can use to advance overseas development. Um, they use loans and export credits just as the PRC does. But I think that the difference is the ratio. Um, so actors like the United States, uh, France, Germany, Japan, they are part of something called the uh, Development Assistance Committee of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And this group of actors come together um, around certain standards of transparency and best practices when it comes to principles of aid and aid effectiveness in the world. Most of these actors, the vast majority of their assistance in the, are concessional, meaning that their grants, you know, I give this money to you, I don't expect a, a financial return, I don't expect you to repay it, or they are low or no interest loans. Basically, I'm giving you this money, I expect it back, but you know, it, it's, it's a pretty low interest rate, you know? China is quite a bit different. China, the vast majority of what China is financing in terms of overseas development is financed by um, loans that are approaching market rates. So that's why I compared it to a bank in that respect, um, or export credits. And so all powers use these instruments, but it's that the ratio is substantially different. Okay, this is a very wonky question, but in terms of <laughs> export credits, let's say it's usually for a, a raw material, right, in return for collateral on the loan. So when they set the market rate for what that, you know, one unit of oil or one unit of copper is, do they set that rate for today's rate or is it a pre-negotiated rate that they pay back over 15 to 30 years, whatever the average lifespan of the loan is? Um, so these are slightly different questions. So um, export credits are, um, uh, they're different than collateral. 
So let me talk about collateral. And that's actually another reason why China is like a bank. Um, in that when China is investing in risky markets, um, it does so by hedging itself. Uh, and so it incorporates things like requirements of collateral. Um, and as you alluded to, this, you know, when you have collateral that is part of a loan, it's basically you're getting access to this loan and the collateral is used in the event that you can't repay. Most often, this is in the form of liquid assets, actually, the requirement to have a bank account where you're you know, putting in the proceeds from um, commodities trading or from uh, revenues generated by the asset. And that's accumulating in this account such that if you, uh, you know, can't repay your loan, then you can actually grab the, the, that liquid asset. Um, sometimes this can be in the form of uh, commodities themselves, you're right, that you could have access to shipments of X amount of, of crops uh, or natural resources, minerals and the like. Um, there's also credit insurance. There um, are other risk premia that can be in play, but that is usually more in the sense of how do I ensure uh, that I can get repaid? Uh, what you're talking about with export credits is somewhat different where this is in the context of actually giving favorable uh, rates to um, import or export materials. Um, and so that's not necessarily, it's to do with purchasing and getting favorable prices for purchasing as opposed to uh, collateral in the sense of a loan. Okay, so it's more of a guaranteed discount on mm -hmm. the import and export of a particular good. Mm -hmm. Okay. So within the data set itself, there's about 843 billion associated with various BRI and non-BRI projects. Can you shed some light for us on how that mix is divided between how much of that is aid money and grants and how much of that is what we would normally categorize as debt? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let me first talk about if, if we don't think about BRI theme projects versus not, just look at overall assistance from China during that period of 2000 to 2017. So about 81% of that assistance would be in the form of high interest loans or export credits. About 12% would be your kind of your grants, your concessional loans, your loan, no, no, no or low interest loans. Um, in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative and the, the study that, that we've done to look at projects that are BRI themed in that they, you know, they're in the spirit of what BRI is trying to achieve, um, what's interesting is that these are quite a bit different than non-BRI projects. So approximately two-thirds of BRI-themed financing was in the form of loans, uh, approaching market rates or using uh, or other debt instruments. And the reverse is true of non-BRI-themed activities. So two-thirds of this was in the form of aid, grants, or, no, or low-interest loans. And so that adds a, an additional bit of nuance in the sense that even though the vast majority of what China is supporting in overseas development around the world is in the form of debt, that's not always the case. And sometimes it's using um, kind of more generous terms. And so that raises an interesting question about, well, when is China more likely to give um, financing away for free or at relatively reasonable rates? And I think that tends to be with projects that are um, 
more interested in the political or reputational benefits. Uh, they're high visibility projects. You know, think about things like um, stadiums or schools or uh, clinics that are highly visible representations of China as a benefactor. So reading through aid data is delivering the Belt and Road Report. So recurring themes seem to be, and correct me if I'm reading the report wrong on this one, is that branding all these activities as Belt and Road really didn't change the overall lending trajectory for the PRC over this 17 year time span. So if it wasn't called BRI or OBOR or anything, the activity would just continue um, with or without this branding. Is that kind of what your research suggests or did your research reveal something slightly different or completely different? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think, you know, the initial impetus when I started out on this research project was to understand is, does BRI matter or not? Is BRI primarily an advertising or marketing campaign? Is it the good housekeeping skill of approval that you put on a project? Um, and the answer is complicated. You know, it's if you look at the data and you compare it over time, the, the amount of projects and financing that are focused on Belt and Road Initiative themes, so greater connectivity between people and societies, far predates uh, the actual announcement of BRI. So in that, by that definition, the announcement of BRI didn't really mean that much. It was almost a doubling down on things that had come before. There is an element of BRI as a political membership block for countries to join. I think certainly we have seen that be important in terms of the, the number of countries that have actually joined up uh, to the Belt and Road Initiative over, over time. But what's interesting too there is there's not much difference in the profile of the financing by volume or type of projects that a BRI member country receives versus a non-BRI member country. So just on the basis of financing and projects, you don't really get that much for being a BRI country that you wouldn't get if you were just a holdout. So I can imagine someone from, you know, the US or European security or defense policy community reading like one year, there's only 70 out of 195 countries are members of the BRI, and then the next year they wake up and it's 143 of 195 countries. Mm -hmm. um, but So when we dig a little bit deeper, what does membership even entail for an actual member country? Are there tangible benefits that a member of the BRI gets that a non-member wouldn't get? You know, it's important to recognize that the Belt and Road Initiative can serve multiple purposes. And I think that you know, for China, for Xi Jinping, it's clear that the Belt and Road Initiative was seen as a signature initiative of, you know, his his tenure, that he put his name and stamp very much on it. It's not necessarily entirely driven by him. He, he set it up to be incredibly flexible so that, you know, different parts of the Chinese government, different levels of government could, you know, work this in ways that advance their interests. And that was flexible. Um, but he definitely has a reputational stake on the line. And I think partly BRI was about a bid to show that, that China could have a seat at the global leadership table. Um, and when it started BRI, it started small. It focused first on you know, countries in its, great, you know, its immediate neighborhood. Uh, so 
primarily in Asia. And then now today you could say that China is, you know, China's Belt and Road Initiative is truly global. It touches all regions of, of the world. Um, so what do you get out of it and how do countries get involved? So countries can sign up to BRI using one of two mechanisms. One is a cooperative agreement, which is looser. Um, it's basically saying, yes, we will work together on, on this, this um, as part of the BRI, we'll work on projects together. And it's fairly low stakes for everybody involved. Um, or you can sign a memorandum of understanding, which is actually far more um, meaningful in that it lays out specific details of concrete projects you're going to work on together. Um, what's interesting is if you look at the membership of BRI, um, you actually, and we've looked at popular perceptions of uh, China based off of whether these, whether these are member countries of BRI or not, and the timing of when that occurred. Um, and what you do see is that actually at baseline, uh, countries that uh, are part of BRI view China more favorably than those that are not. Um, but that was true before they even joined BRI. Um, but they do get, but China gets a favorability bump uh, among those that have joined BRI, even though they were more favorable to begin with, they're even more favorable uh, as time goes on. Um, and why might that be? You know, I think it's about uh, perceived respect. It's being seen as um, being a major player, you know, in a, a larger group of countries. Uh, to be seen as having a special relationship with China, that can go a long way. There might also be a perception that, you know, joining up to BRI is a gateway to accessing greater financing or certain types of projects. I think that's where our research says, eh, I'm not so sure that that's true. Um, but, you know, it is, I think it, you're seeing more of the benefits accrue politically than necessarily in terms of the profile of the financing itself. So it seems like the BRI in some ways might be offsetting some of the negative public perceptions from China's more aggressive foreign policy efforts in the Southeast Asia region, especially when it has to do with the South China Sea and uh, all the island disputes in that area. So when you look at the perception data, how do you, how do you disaggregate how much of that bump is because of BRI-related projects versus how much of that loss is from a more aggressive PRC foreign policy, or is it just impossible to tell like this much, this BRI, I think, bumped perception up this much, and then China does something aggressive in the South China Sea, so it lowers perception by this much. Is there really any way to measure that, or are we talking best guesses? And First, I guess as a starting point, I'll say, you know, one of the challenges for a great power, be it China or anybody else, in terms of shaping popular opinion or elite opinion about what it's doing is that perceptions aren't happening in a vacuum. And sometimes great powers are doing multiple things in tandem that may be working at cross purposes. So for example, when I uh, was doing a series of uh, key informant interviews in the Philippines with leaders there, uh, what was striking to me is that on the one hand, China is doubling down on things like um, scholarships uh, for study abroad broad programs or these, you know, uh, investment projects that are focused on public goods or, you know, 
cultural or social things to, to benefit society. So all of these things are happening. And then on the other hand, uh, you're seeing this assertive, aggressive behavior in the South China Sea in terms of pressing maritime disputes. And all of these things are affecting public opinion. And, you know, it's quite striking, actually, in the Philippines case that uh, today, uh, you know, if you look at Philippines popular opinion surveys of China and perceived China's perceived trustworthiness, um, it's neutral. Uh, but for China, neutral is a good thing because it used to be negative, and so now it's now it's neutral. Um, but I think that's that takes into account that there are multiple factors in play uh, that shape people's perceptions of a great power. Some of these things are negative, particularly the the things that you know China is doing in the South China Sea, and some things are seen as positive. Um, all of those things take have to be taken into account. I think in terms of global popular perceptions, um, what's interesting to me is that we looked at this from 2005 to 2021 uh, using public opinion polls that have been asked every year about um, the perceived approval of leadership of foreign countries. And China has maintained about a third of um of people surveyed globally would say that they had a, they approved of the the leadership of China, and that's actually stayed fairly consistent over time. Like strikingly, even amidst the BRI and all of the you know some of the negative press that has come out, um, it's been fairly consistent. But what you do see changing is uh, a shift away from neutral perceptions on China to more polarized negative perception. So uh, you're seeing higher disapproval over time, but that's it's it's picking off from the neutral perspectives, not the, the positive ones. Um, that kind of um, dynamic is also true for other great powers like the United States. So you see kind of a fairly stable base of people that are, view the US favorably over time, um, but then you see growing disapproval rates um, with you know picking off picking away from that neutral group, 2021 was the first time where we actually see uh, China's disapproval rates jumping above that of the U.S., which is interesting. Um, in terms of geographic uh, differentiation, I mean, as you alluded to, there are, you know not all regions are are viewing this the same way, and I do think that there is something to the effect of, you know, I think there's higher levels of disapproval closer to home for China than there is farther away. Um, so actually, when I look at a region like the East Asian Pacific, uh, you actually see higher rates of disapproval there relative to other parts of the world. And I think it's because, um, you know, some of these countries are starting to see the negative effects or ramifications of Chinese financed investment projects in their backyards. But it could also be due to other factors as well. So, you know, I think when we have um, done rigorous statistical testing uh, in other studies, typically what we find is um, that the the financing from China and these overseas investment projects can be highly polarizing. Uh, where you do see kind of a shift away from that neutral position into more negative and positive views. So I think that's like my takeaway is that it's it's more polarizing in general. Does that uh, polarity, does that spread to a country like India? So, you know, there's a popular perception that the West in general is kind of losing the narrative with regard to like the global South, but mm -hmm. perhaps 
India and China are still, I guess, viable contenders for leadership in the global south. So within your survey data, does it look at India and how does popular perception of India change over time? We do. We have looked at India in the past. And uh, what's intriguing, I'll, I'll answer that in a few different ways. So we most recently actually did a, a survey looking at um, preferred partners by sector. And uh, for those that were in South Asia, we specifically asked about perceptions of India, interestingly. And uh, it turns out that, yeah, in, in, in South Asia, uh, that's one of the few places in the world where um, and somebody else other than China was the, the most frequently selected partner for infrastructure, and it was India. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's something there in that India is still a you know, powerful regional contender. Um, I think the attitudes towards India ten, in, in South Asia and its backyard tend to be um, fraught <laughs> um, in that, you know, if you're looking at the, um, the perceptions of smaller powers like in Nepal, for example, um, often they'll look at India as high degree of cultural affinity and social affinity, but there's also a sense of being pushed around and being seen as like the little brother to the big brother, if you will. And so that familiarity can cause discomfort. <laughs> but there's also a sense that, you know, countries are looking to India as a major player. Um, and some might say, though, that, you know, part of the, the impetus for, for the smaller countries in South Asia to be courting China or to be interested in working with China is essentially about balancing these two big powers in their backyard and to try to um, position themselves to get a better deal uh, by being seen as, well, I can work with you, I can work with you, you know, who's going to get me the better deal? Um, and so I think, you know, maybe initially when China was a smaller player <laughs> in the in the region, you know, China was actually viewed as the the, the counterbalance to to India and dependence on India. Now, perhaps, you know, we see some of that shifting and changing. This concludes part one of our two-part episode on China's Belt and Road Initiative, taking a data-centric approach towards untangling what is fact from fiction when it comes to the BRI. Join us next time for part two of the interview. Please note that the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the College of William & Mary Aid Data, the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, or the Army Foundry platform. Attached to the show notes are the transcript for this episode and the next one as well. There's also a list of definitions for terms we might not encounter commonly. We've switched our email address so that non-DOD listeners can also reach us with comments and episode suggestions. Our new address is hindsight.podcast.afp at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Vu Tran signing off from Fort Liberty, North Carolina.